All right, so we're picking up in the book of 1 Timothy. Our text for this evening is 1 Timothy 4, uh, verses 6 through 10, and I will read those uh, with you. It says, If you point these things out to the brothers and sisters, you will be a good minister of Christ Jesus, nourished on the truths of the faith and of the good teaching that you have followed. Have nothing to do with godless myths and old wives' tales. Rather, train yourself to be godly. For physical training is of some value, but godliness has value for all things, holding promise for both the present life and the life to come. This is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. That is why we labor and strive, because we have put our hope in the living God, who is the Savior of all people, and especially of those who believe. This is the word of the Lord. Tonight, we're going to talk about Timothy's responsibilities. This is where Paul turns the tables and doesn't just talk about things like overseers and deacons or church discipline or these kind of big ideas that those in leadership should, should strive for. It kind of gets personal a bit here as Paul is talking to Timothy. Uh, the way that we're going to work this out today, I have a few comments about the verses. We'll just kind of go through them. And then uh, I've got some four points of application at the end. I say this in my mind every week, but I actually think this one's true and I'll hold myself to it. This week will be within that 25 minute sweet spot that I'm always striving for. The last few have not fit in those, in that comfortable 25 minute block. So somebody hold me accountable for that. Start the timer now and go. And when I hit it, just raise your hand and try to be as obnoxious as possible. Even if it's right in the middle of a, a great point, okay? Not really, I mean, be sensitive to the move of the spirit, but hold me accountable. All right, so this is the text. It says, if you point these things out. So here we're set within the middle of a letter. Anytime you're reading the Bible, it's important to know what's come before and what's coming after. Some people think that this phrase here is referring to the things that happened in the, in the past. So overseers, deacons, um, making sure that Timothy is correcting the bad doctrine. If, Timothy, you point these things out, all that stuff that's come before, um, then you're going to be a good minister. Some other people think that this is initiating a new uh, set of texts. It seems like it, it, there's a, a play on both sides here where, yes, Timothy is entrusted with all these things that he has learned, but it's also going to move into a different area as well. If you point these things out to the brothers and sisters, this is Paul's code word for the church. This is Paul saying, Timothy, your job is to teach these things to the people in this room. This is not you just go down the street and start getting in people's face and talk about church discipline or overseers or deacons. This is um, in-house sort of conversations, okay? And at this stage, if you do these things, if you point them out to the folks in the church, you'll be a good minister. Um, diakonos is the Greek term there, and that's the word where we get deacon from. This is the same word that's used in chapter three where Paul's talking about what it looks like to be a good helper, or a good servant, or a good deacon in the church. So what Paul's doing here is kind of subtle. He's saying, Timothy, this isn't your specific role, but you're going to be taking on some of the responsibilities that look like something that would be on the job description of a deacon. It's interesting because, again, when we think about deacons, we think about the guys and girls uh, that clip the hedges, that fix the rain gutters, that kind of do manual labor type things. Um, but here what Paul is doing is he's associating the work of, of the diaconate, if you want to get special, with teaching and reproof and um, correcting doctrine. So here you're going to be a good 
helper, servant, deacon of Christ Jesus, nourished on the words of faith and of the good teaching that you have followed. This is Paul saying, Timothy, you've entrusted yourself to the gospel. Continue to do that. Again, there's this play within the book on good teaching, bad teaching. Teaching that uh, edifies Christ, teaching that accurately represents what the gospel is all about, and then what the Torah teachers were doing in chapter one, where they're misusing it, almost using it as a, a point of authority to say, you can't do this, you can't eat that, you can't get married, you can't do this, that, or the other thing, where they're taking uh, the text and, and kind of lording it over people. Here, Timothy, it's different because he's a good minister. He's pointing these things out and he's nourished on the words of faith and the good teaching, the gospel, the understanding that Christ is not only your individual savior, but the one who has redeemed and reconciled the whole entire world. Timothy, because you get that, you're able to do these things that I'm asking you to do. He continues, have nothing to do with profane and old wives' tales, it says in the NIV. Um, other translators have said, old women myths, I like that. Stay away from those old women myths. <laughs> Don't know, or, or silly myths is kind of the, the term that's being used here. One commentator says, while sexist and derogatory at face value, this word here that's used to describe the old women myths is typically used in antiquity, that is in the context of, of this writing in the first century uh, and surrounding time periods, um, as a non-literal rhetorical ploy to denigrate profane and silly myths, no matter the gender of one's intellectual rivals. So this isn't just Paul saying, stay away from the stories that old women will tell you. It's saying, stay away from the stuff that shouldn't bog you down, that shouldn't really deserve your time. Stay focused on the gospel, the things over here, they'll just sidetrack you. Don't worry about those things. The point is, Timothy should spend his time teaching the gospel rather than defending its truths against the profane and silly, unimportant, so far out there myths of, of his time. So this is in contrast to the bad teaching that he's supposed to correct. There's also this teaching that's so far gone where Paul's saying, don't, don't worry about that. Don't invest your time and therefore legitimize how crazy this set of teaching might be. What does this mean in particular? What are our myths in our days? We talk for, just for a second about um, the things that could potentially cause Christians to be angry or cause Christians to be um, wanting to correct bad teaching, and it falls into this, this area of silly or profane or things that shouldn't uh, catch our attention. Uh, one example that I could come up with would be uh, Westboro Baptist Church. The folks that claim to be Christians that will protest military funerals because they believe that uh, war and death and war is God's judgment for the LGBT community. Like taking, taking te the teachings of the Bible and distorting them so, so badly that they've completely gone in, in a direction that we almost would characterize as silly or profane or not even really worth our time. The catch-22 of that, though, is if we just let that be for a lot of people that live 
and operate within the world that don't have a better conception of what Christianity is, they might see that church as the true representation of the teachings of Jesus. I severely doubt it, um, but it does seem like there's this catch-22 where there's these things that don't really deserve our time, but then what happens if we don't address them at all? At least in this context, it seems as though um, Paul is telling Timothy there is a difference. And I don't want you to get bogged down with the stuff that's, that you shouldn't get bogged down with. If you uh, care about the world of evangelical Christianity, which I know maybe two of you do in the room, um, the last few days has just been a ridiculous barrage of news stories about this musician thinking this about creation and how he's heretical and this pastor saying these things 15 years ago and how he should be booted out. And, and I don't want to make value judgments on either one, but it seems that Christians preoccupy themselves with throwing stones in the metaphorical glass house we feel as though it's our job to take anyone who has doctrine different than ours and just completely berate them in a very public manner. Those are the sorts of stories that, that stand right in line with, with Westboro Baptist Church of the world where it's, that's who people see us to be. So I think that there's at least wisdom in thinking through when to engage and when not to engage. You know that in certain conversations with friends or people that you know where they're going, if you were to just to take the bait, as they say in the world of the internet, people will troll us to try to see what it is that we'll do with those very softball-like pitches out there where you might want to engage, but you're only engaging with someone who doesn't want to engage with you. And I think there's wisdom and discernment in when and where it's appropriate and how to engage in those discussions. So that's a, a bit of a reading in there. Obviously, that doesn't have, uh, that's not totally on Paul's periphery because he's talking about something a bit more contextual than that, but I think there's some application for us. Uh, the second main focus of this text is about exercise. He says, instead of spending your time focusing on the profane and the old wife fables, tales, old women myths, whatever, I hope that's not sexist and derogatory. He says, train yourself, gumnaze which has that tie to the gymnasium. This is where we get that word from. And so it's like Paul is appealing to the work um, of an athlete here. Train yourself not to be a good wrestler or runner, but train yourself to be godly. There's this play in this text between the profane and the godly. There's a play between these things that are inappropriate and these things that, that God wants us to engage and to, uh, to struggle to become. It says, train yourself to be godly. For physical training is of some value, but godliness has value for all things. Okay, those two, um, physical training and spiritual or godly training, are not mutually exclusive. So often, um, and I think this might step on toes, and I don't totally mean it in that way, but so often um, the church has focused on our spiritual well-being that we've neglected, our physical well-being, and those two conversations usually don't come up because they are sensitive conversations. But here, it's not Paul's point to say it's not important to take care of yourself, to watch what you eat, to exercise, to not be completely sedentary where you're just sitting there, um, but to, to care about what you've been given and to treat it well. 
I don't know if you guys can tell, but I have recently signed up and started lifting weights at Planet Fitness. <laughs> Thank you, Daniel. Uh, to, to try to live this out, sort of, but I mean, a lot of times, if we're being honest, this has nothing to do with Jesus. This has to do with me wanting to look good at the beach. <laughs> or me wanting to get my 5K time down into the world where I can run with Brandon and we can actually be close and he won't beat me by 20 minutes. Where it's like, I, I, I'm fueled by my own selfish motivations and desires to be better. And I think that this is, this is interesting because when you start lifting weights or you start running or you start dieting or you start whatever, you begin to see immediate results and sometimes that can fuel us. But with regard to spiritual training, training in godliness, you don't always see the same sorts of um, results and it can be a bit depressing. So therefore our discipline in training ourselves for godliness might not always stack up to our training the physical, although if we're being honest, we're pretty bad at training the physical too. Um, there's always a push in gyms where January, February memberships go through the roof because it's New Year's resolutions and then by March, everybody's back home watching Netflix and eating Cheetos. And we all said amen and we all enjoy that. So get out of my face, all right. Um, so godliness, Paul does say, has, has more benefit. Um, so physical training is of some value. He, I think that there is importance there, um, but godliness has value for all things, he says, because it's holding promise for both the present life and the life to come. Okay, against my better judgment, we will talk about this. I talk about this all the time. If anyone has ever spent time with me in class, you've seen this a few times. At this time when this letter is being written, um, there's a conception within Jewish thinking that's very linear. At the moment, they occupy space in this age. And at some point, a very definitive event will take place that ushers in what's called the age to come. They're waiting for something to happen so that they can leave this age and enter into whatever that looks like. I can at least say this much. It probably doesn't look the same as we've conceived of it in our minds where we go to heaven out there somewhere, not here. They thought about things in a very different way. But what Jesus did, he took this paradigm and sort of blew it up where instead of this one moment that brings about the age to come, there's uh, this kind of weird already not yet moment. So Jesus shows up and he takes the age to come, and he brings it into the present where the people that follow him can begin to experience the things that they were waiting to experience, things like justice, things like restoration, things like reconciliation, redemption, healing, all of these things that were, that were out there somewhere. When Jesus shows up, he completely brings those things into the present. The man with the withered hand is healed and he's restored. Uh, the woman with the issue of blood is healed and she's restored. Uh, even things like food miracles, he's making something that seems to show the wear and tear of the world, and he's bringing the bountifulness and the fruitfulness of that time into the present, or the stilling of the storm where he just shows up and says, peace, and the storm is still. Like these are all moments where we begin to see what they're waiting for is actually here and now in the life and death and climactically in the resurrection of Jesus. A lot of times the way that we as Christians think about this 
we're waiting for something better. We're waiting for something else. We're waiting for something out there somewhere when the message of the New Testament over and over and over is you're already experiencing some of it now. And beyond that, as ambassadors for Christ, it's not just we go out and evangelize, it's we bring heaven to earth. We do the work of God in the sense of bringing those things to bear now as we stand up for justice and reconciliation and forgiveness and we see the equality amongst peoples and we begin to bring those things that are supposed to happen out there and we bring them to bear even here. So Paul um, is, is saying that these things have, have value for right now um, in this age and in the age to come. Third thing, uh, this idea of motivation. He says, this is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. This line comes up over and over and over in Timothy. I forget how many times in particular, but it usually is introducing what comes after it. And he says, this is the trustworthy saying, for to this end, this is what it's all about, Timothy. To this end, we labor. This word here, labor, has overtones with, um, again, an athlete's training. We contend, we fight, we uh, wrestle, we train ourselves, we labor and we struggle because we have put our hope in the living God. This word here um, is what's called a perfect, which means it happened in the past. It's not we are continually putting hope in or we are hoping for something out there. It's in the past. That action is something that has taken root and it defines who we are as people. We are contending we're laboring, we're struggling because in the past we've placed hope in God, the living God, the God who is savior of all people, weird line here, and especially of those who believe. Some people take this line to be an indication of what's called universalism, where God is going to be the savior of all people and especially the ones who believe in him. It seems better to think about this line as God being the king, undertone, not that Roman ruler. God being the one who is in power over all things. God as the one who is savior of all things and especially of those who believe he is crowned as uh, ruler and leader. To this end, we labor and struggle. We've put our hope in the past in God who is certainly saved us. There's four points of application that I want to pull out. One of them is going to come back to this line here. The first one is a good servant. Remember, Timothy and those overtones with the deacon or the helper or however you want to quantify that. A good servant, one who follows that role well, is shaped by the gospel. And you should be too. We talk so much about the death and resurrection of Jesus. We talk so much about the new life that we have through him. We talk so much about being conformed into his image. We talk so much about restoration and God restoring things back to what they were intended to be. We talk so much about forgiveness and peace and mercy and love and all these concepts that in our lives don't take root that in our lives we can't ascribe to ourselves because we're too bad or we're too tainted or we're too whatever. Even in, in your conversations in your mind about discipleship where you say, oh gosh, I can't disciple anyone. 
What do I have to offer? We carry those over at times, and we don't hear uh, the truth of the gospel that says it's forgiven, it's done, it's been paid for. Now live in light of it. Bring heaven to earth. We spend too much time stewing over how bad we are, how it's completely inconceivable that God would love us or care for us or want anything to do with us. And remember the undertone in this letter where Paul says, I am the foremost of all sinners. But yet Paul has received grace. We should be a people shaped by the gospel and that should not be something that only takes place in the quietness of your house during your devotional time. That should be something that shapes how you speak, how you act, how you engage, how you love, how you fight for justice. All of these things, it should be so evident in whatever way God has created you to show those things. This is not my moment where I say, we should all be super smiley and just skip down the street and hold hands and sing kumbaya because that's what Christians should do, right? Whatever it looks like for you to be someone who's shaped by the gospel, begin to live that out this week at work, at school, in your, in your homes, with your family, with your girlfriend, boyfriend, friends, whoever. Like, Let them see that this is actually something that's shaping you and let them confirm to you that this is something that's actually working in you. This is not, side note, a talk where we're all going to arrive at one point or we're going to become better and better and better and better people, but let at least this be something that's not just an ethereal concept that at one point in your life you accepted so that you wouldn't burn in hell for all eternity. Let this be something that actually takes root in who you are and people can see it and experience it. Number two, a good servant is one who trains hard. This idea of training for godliness. It's not just you roll out of bed and because you've prayed that prayer, you're good. It's you actually put forth effort. It might mean you read books. It might mean you read the Bible. It might mean that you pray. It might mean that you think about these things and you try to move from point A to point B. It might mean that you're intentional in your relationships or in your prayer life or in whatever. Like this, this idea of training is one that demands discipline. And I would go on to say, usually a discipline that we don't want to allow it to have in our lives. To which those moments where Jesus shows up and says to the religious leaders, you don't get it. You're a whitewashed tomb. You look good, but on the inside, you're dead. This prostitute, she gets it because she's been forgiven much. A good servant trains hard and the implication would be you should too. This isn't a call for legalism. This isn't a call for just have that checklist where you're doing these things, but this is a call for Jesus lays out the gauntlet and at times he says, if this isn't costing you anything, then you're not worthy of me. You don't get it. Pick up your cross and follow me. Whatever that looks like and whatever that means uh, for you as an individual, begin to think through that. Number three, a good servant lives in tension, particularly lives in this tension of the, the not yet, the things that are to come and the already where these things have invaded earth. They live in this tension of um, there's, there's things that Jesus has actually changed and transformed about the world and we see that in glimpses and living in light of that, but there's also something where we 
um, begin to fight to bring those concepts into the present. A good servant lives in this tension of we haven't fully arrived yet, but through Christ, we're allowed to live abundantly. We're allowed to have this life that kind of spans the already and the not yet or the this age and the age to come where we begin to see some of these things. It's not just an idea of heaven out there somewhere when we die. It's that thing takes root in us now and we become agents of change in the world. A good servant lives in that tension and you should too. Fourth and finally, a good servant hopes in God, the living God, the Savior God. I took to Facebook yesterday and asked you guys to start to articulate what you believe uh, hope is. I think for a lot of us, hope is something that's out there, something that we're waiting for, something that hasn't quite uh, taken root yet. It seems though, it seems that in this text, the things that they're hoping in are the things that have already happened. God being the one who has saved all people, particularly those who believe. Um, God is the one who through Christ has brought about change. It's already happened. That's where their hope lies. It's not in what will happen in the next day or the next week or the next year. It's that thing back there in roughly anywhere from 29 to 34 AD. That thing changed everything else and we hope in that. It's done. Now, what does that mean for the things that we pray for? I have no idea. That's a huge letdown, I know. Um, but at times, if we begin to hope in this outcome or that outcome, I think that we, we miss the idea that the source and the roots of our hope are in the past. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't um, be expectant for change or healing or um, things to happen but I think that when there's a danger that at times we can move so far beyond this rooting in the past to what's out there that sometimes we miss it. That is easier said than done. This idea of hoping in God and how we should too, when, when the rubber meets the road and real life happens, this is extremely difficult and I don't want to reduce it to a pithy statement where I say, hope in God because it happened in the past and you're all good because sometimes life sucks. Sometimes the things that you don't anticipate happening happen. Sometimes the God that you hope in seems to be the God that's checked out or not involved. And I think it's in those moments it's important for us not to bury our heads in the sand, not to be scared to ask questions or doubt or wrestle, but to be the ones who are very slow to cut that tether the death and resurrection of Jesus and the change and the transformation, not just in our personal lives, but in the whole focus of the world that it's brought about. There's a lot from this text about, um, about Timothy being a good minister, but I think the implications um, are very prevalent for us as a community. I want to at least encourage you again, as we leave you with, with this question, has the gospel taken root in you so that you're changed, transformed, the things that you think, the way that you go about life, the relationships that you have, where it's actually doing something, transforming you, not just it's an additive so that you'll be okay someday down the road, but like it's, it's taking root in you.
Is, is the gospel something that's creating a hope in you that's not contingent upon what happens or what takes place or this or the other thing where it's just, it's already something that you've hoped in. And again, that's not an argument for bearing our heads in the sand. That's an argument for um, seeing that it's not just about us. It's about this larger mission. And even that just sounds so trite, but wrestling with those concepts. Has the gospel been something that causes us to train hard, to work hard, to want more, to pursue with everything that we have? Or do we treat it like our physical exercise? Good for a week, bad for five months, good for a week, bad for a year? Or is this something where we can begin to build in disciplines where this is not just an ethereal concept, but it's something that actually takes root in us? In all of that, know that hope is available in the person and work of Jesus, in his life, his death, and his resurrection, and trust um, that God truly is the Savior of the world and the Savior even more so of those who choose to believe in him.